This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Thanks for tuning in today. This is The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as I hope you know by now, this is a program committed to taking phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, uh, anything that's on your heart. I'll do the best that I can. All you have to do is call us. You can dial our main number. It's 210-340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. Now while we wait for some phone calls, um, I've got, uh, it's a Tuesday, so there's not a bunch going on. I'll get right to the questions. The first one comes from Nacho from our email inbox. Uh, He asks, what was the real reason that Satan tempted Jesus in Luke chapter 4 Verses 1 through 13. Was it because he thought that Jesus did not know he was God, or was this a desperate ploy to see if Jesus would succumb? I found verse 13 curious that Satan would look for another opportunity to tempt Jesus. Would that be in Gethsemane? Uh, Not sure the last question. I think that's exactly right. I think uh, um, by withstanding the initial temptations, um, the, the, the only opportune time that Jesus would have would be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And and in my opinion, that would be the greatest trial Jesus ever had. He was sweating great drops of blood. Uh, The Father had to send angels to minister to him. That was the only thing that that would help him survive that night. It was just the most difficult time in Jesus' life. Now, the temptation uh, is, for me, fascinating. Nacho, I love doing this study. Because uh, there is so much value for us. You know, I find it especially interesting that um, Jesus had just been baptized. um, And immediately, after the Spirit of the Lord falls on him in the form of a dove, not it wasn't a dove, but in the form of a dove, uh, the first thing that Jesus was faced with was a trip to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil himself. Is it true we have such a, uh, a normal expectation that if God's leading me, everything's going to be okay? Jesus' first thing in his ministry was to go out and encounter Satan himself in the wilderness. Now, um, the purpose of Jesus being tempted by the devil um, was to set an example for you and for me because as he was tempted... Certainly we will be tempted. Satan has schemes, and and that's one of the schemes that he's going to have. He repeats himself. There's nothing original with the devil. So the first temptation that uh, the, the devil tried was this one. If you are the son of God, tell me or tell this stone to become bread. Now, the devil had no doubt about who Jesus was. That's why he was there. But this was simply a means of taunting a weak and desperate man. Uh, Remember, Jesus was human. I think sometimes we forget that. And Jesus had gone 40 days without water and 40 days without food. And Satan, who is a coward, 
was going to wait for that opportunity. And so when Jesus was his weakest, he appeals to us. Now, he also, in this first one, appealed to a real need. That's important because when he appeals to us, when he tempts us, he often appeals to a real need. Jesus was hungry. He needed something to eat. So that's where Satan begins. Now, again, he knew who he was. So this wasn't if you're the son of God, like if there's any question. This was him simply saying, um, you know, since you're the son of God, why would your father let you suffer like this? This is the devil's approach to Jesus. I think it's one of his most successful approaches to us. He kind of makes us feel like we should never have to suffer or sacrifice. Jesus, you remember, willingly deprived himself of food. And he did so just to teach us how to resist the lies of the devil. But he's trying to get Jesus at the beginning to doubt the love and care of his father. If your father really loved you, would he let you go hungry? Well, when he tempts us in the same way, Nacho, his purpose is to try to make us think that God has forgotten about us in our times of needs. We remember, need to remember to respond the way Jesus does, and that's by um, giving the word of God. And that's what Jesus does. It's written that man does not live on bread alone. Um, the next kingdom, or the next temptation... Uh, was the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. Now we know that Adam gave the world to Satan when he fell. In the same way, we continue to give the, the, the devil control in our lives by our sin. Uh, and what Satan wanted was to be worshipped. Now notice here that Jesus doesn't rebuke Satan for lying about being able to give him the kingdoms of the world. Satan is in control of this world. Now God is sovereign. He's in control overall. But Paul describes the devil as a little G-God of this world. In other words, he's the one who's running rampant in this world. And here's this temptation is, look, if you just worship me, I'll give you everything that you came here to get. And you won't have to suffer for it. It's a shortcut. Now Jesus going through this is important for us because we're too often looking for shortcuts. We want the easy way, the comfortable way to serve God. And it's just not going to happen. So Satan was tempting Jesus to find a shortcut. You don't need to die. There's no cross necessary. We have to remember that there's no crown without a cross there's no resurrection without their first being a crucifixion. And again, Jesus responds with the word of God. Finally, the devil led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And this is simply a temptation to show off. Now, Satan often assumes that the people here is tempting is just like he is. Remember, pride was Satan's fall. And he just assumed, okay, well, the first two didn't work, so I'll try this one. I'll try to get him to show off. And he's saying, Jesus, show your miraculous power. And Jesus, of course, isn't going to go with that either. So that's the, the, the reasoning behind the temptations. Um, Your second question, I forgot. Oh, Satan would look for... Oh, I did answer that one. So, hope that helps, Nacho. Thank you very, very much for the question. Here is a question that comes from Michael. He said, Pastor, on Romans 11, talks about the fullness of the Gentiles. What does that mean? Uh, one of my favorite verses, Michael, um, it's Romans 11, 25 and 26, uh, and, and I'm going to read it because it's so important. Um, he, Paul writes, I do not want you to be ignorant of this brother, of this mystery, brothers, a mystery being something that's never before been disclosed, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. 
And then he says, and so all Israel will be saved, and it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Now, a couple of things about this, Michael. First, the full number of Gentiles refers to a a finite or a specific number of Gentiles, non-Jews, who are going to come into the kingdom of God, who are going to be born again by the Spirit of God. And it's almost as though every time somebody gets saved, every time, that one more notch goes off that number. And it reminds us that there's a day coming when the last Gentile is going to give his or her life to Jesus. I always tell my church when I'm giving invitations, just tell them, look, don't be stubborn. If you're the last one and you're the one keeping us here, we never know when the last one is going to get saved, Michael. So what we do is we simply enjoy the fact that there's a countdown in heaven. And all over the world, non-Jews are hearing the gospel and non-Jews in droves are getting saved. And at one moment... We're going to find we're at the end. As soon as he or she says yes to Jesus, then we're all going to be out of here. Now, I read the next verse, verse 26, because Paul is talking about a a really important doctrinal issue. He says, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, we know that that doesn't mean every Jew. The name Israel means governed by God. So we know that when Jesus comes, one-third of the Jews who live in Israel, one-third of them are going to recognize that they, this was their Messiah, they killed him, and they're going to surrender their hearts to Jesus Christ. But that means, according to Zechariah, two-thirds of Jews who see the same thing are not going to be saved. It's an amazing thing. But there's always a remnant. And as soon as the full number of Gentiles comes in, that's verse 25, then verse 26, and then all Israel will be saved because that's when God turns his attention back to the people of Israel. Uh, That's going to happen, we know, during the Great Tribulation. Um, For now, uh, God is spending his energy and his time and his servants' talents on Gentiles. We need to give our hearts to Jesus. Good question. Michael, thank you. Todd says, is Satan in charge of the demonic world and does he have a plan to take over? Um, he, he's sort of in charge. Yeah, he's like the lead demon. But here's the thing that we have to understand, that his kingdom is not a divided one. It's not like he has little demon meetings and gives everybody assignments and everybody you know, is obedient. Uh, demons have a mind of their own. You remember, there are demons who are held in bondage uh, in, in, in the abyss um, awaiting to be released during the Great Tribulation. Why? Because those demons could not be controlled. And just as Satan is full of pride, so too are his demons, especially the more powerful ones. So he's in charge in the sense that he's the most powerful. Um, but there's no united plan to take over. Uh, I I imagine what demons do is just anything and everything that they can get away with. I love Jesus' encounters, Todd, in the Gospel accounts with demons because even though they hated him, they despised him, and you could tell they were were resentful, uh, they always did what he told them to do. They had no choice. So the real one who's in charge of the demonic world is Jesus. Satan might be the master planner, but remember his kingdom will never be united. And a kingdom divided against itself, Jesus said, cannot stand. So so uh, Satan has a plan, uh, but he's not getting a whole bunch of cooperation from the demons. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Phyllis. Um, (laughs) I like this one, Phyllis. Jesus said to pluck our eyes out or cut off our hand if they lead to sin. Not literally, right? No, Phyllis, not literally. What Jesus was telling us to do was to deal this forcefully with sin. You know, I always use the term patty cake. I grew up when everybody was playing patty cake as little kids and and too many of us, we play patty cake with sin. Oh, it's not that bad. It's not as bad as what other people do. 
Well, when Jesus was here, he let us know completely different. What he said was, if you are tempted to sin, stop it at any cost. Deal with sin and temptation forcefully, to deal with it violently. And he used the metaphor, again, not meaning it literally, to gouge out our eyes or cut off our hand if they leave sin. He said it's better to go into to heaven maimed than to be shut out from the kingdom of God. So this is just Jesus, Phyllis, who is telling us to deal with sin this seriously. Don't let it play. Um, don't, don't hang around the edges. Just deal with sin forcefully. Imagine what it would have been like had as Eve was looking at the forbidden tree and she would get close it and closer to it and smell the fruit and then the devil was right there in the, in the serpent to tempt her, to lie to her. Imagine if she would have just ran away. I think of Joseph running away from the scene when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. Don't let sin ever get comfortable. I think this, Phyllis, is a very, very instructive passage of Scripture for all of us in these last days. In the world, we just get too comfortable with sin. And Jesus is telling us that we can't do it. Here's an anonymous question while we wait for phone calls. What kind of ministry opportunities are available for teens who want to serve in the church? I, I imagine anonymous all kinds of ministry opportunities. Um, you know, you can serve in your youth groups. Uh, you can serve in the adult church. Um, we, we've got, we've always got young men and women who are being trained for different kinds of ministries, whether it's the audio uh, visual ministry or the sound uh, ministry. Uh, we've got uh, teens uh, who are on worship teams, um, we, we always wanted to prepare uh, on on Tuesday or on Sunday, the first uh, Sunday of the month, Communion Sunday here. Uh, we always have a bunch of kids from from very small uh, all the way up to teenagers who are passing out the communion elements. They're they're, they're helping in the usher ministry. Uh, I like to get kids involved in the usher ministry because it sort of forces them to meet people that they don't normally hang out with. This is just me, I'm sure, but. It always bothers me when I go into church or I even see in our church when I see all the kids outside hanging together and all the adults inside hanging out together. Um, the kids need the adults. The adults need the kids. And I think there's all kinds of ministry opportunities. Uh, we have cleaning ministry opportunities that a lot of the kids here get involved with. But there's no end to the ministry opportunities that are available and I think if you are in a church and you're wondering what to do, go talk to your pastor or one of the elders in the church uh, and let them know, I'm not here to be a spectator. I'm here to serve. How can I serve you? And they'll give you ideas and just be willing to do it. And uh, because you're interested in serving, uh, I promise you it will be a very, very rich and rewarding time for you. Uh, I always tell the people here at Calvary Chapel that when we start serving, God begins to pour himself out on us so that we can continue to serve others. And we find we've got this gift, and then we find, oh, I've got this gift too. And it's just a wonderful thing, but it always begins with serving other people. Have no motive other than I want to serve you, Lord, by serving the people you love. Have no expectations that anybody's going to appreciate it or say thank you. Just serve because you have an audience of one and it's Jesus and he's trying to do a great work in your life so that he can do a work through your life. So uh, I just don't think there's any ministry opportunity that kids cannot get involved in. You know, I, I was just thinking, we have a, um, um, for instance, Vacation Bible School. Hope we can have it this year. Please pray. Uh, but but VBS, um, our, our VBS, I think, stops at sixth grade. And and then when the kids who've been in VBS every summer all their lives, when they graduate from sixth grade to seventh grade, well, 
it almost, without anybody asking, they all continue to come to VBS, but they do it beginning in seventh grade in a serving capacity. And so we watch our young kids grow up as they get older, then they minister to the younger kids. And one of the things that we do here, uh, Anonymous, is when we are giving invitations, uh, we'll spread the older kids. I'm talking about 13, 14, 15-year-olds. We'll spread them out in front of the, the stage. And when people give their life to Jesus, then they'll come up and ask for prayer for some of those kids. So you're seeing really, really uh, great ministry opportunities um, just by virtue of being willing and being available. I like that question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. The phones are really quiet, so if you've got any questions, we've got plenty of room on our lines. Here's a question from Danny, and he wants to know what led you to become a Calvary Chapel pastor instead of another church. Um, Danny, for me, it was pretty easy, and it was pretty clear my calling. Um, um, I hadn't been raised in church, so I knew nothing about other denominations. Um, I, I actually, when I was called to be a pastor, I wasn't quite sure what a pastor did. Uh, but at the time, uh, I was only maybe six months a Christian when I knew that God had called me to be a pastor. But in that six months, I'd been going to all kinds of churches. And when I first walked into Calvary Chapel, my pastor, the pastor's name then, he's now a friend of mine, was David Rosales. And I got to tell you, I hated it. I absolutely, Danny, I hated it. I thought he was so harsh and so unloving and so judgmental. You see, I was going to a bunch of other churches that were false teaching churches, and they would kind of let you believe what you want and make you all these promises. Well, David just opened the Bible and taught it. And all I could think about was, why is he being so judgmental? Why is he being so harsh? That's not very loving. And... Um, at the same time, there was just something being done in my heart that was making the ministry at Calvary Chapel, it was Ontario then, um, making that ministry very authentic. And then I'd go to the other churches that we were visiting. Paul and I, we used to spend like all day going to church. We'd go to a church in L.A. In, in, in the morning, then we'd go to a church in the afternoon to have a, a three services, and we go in the evening to another church. We just wanted to be in church. But there was just that absence of the authenticity. And let me tell you something. When and The reason I didn't like him at first, Danny, is because he would teach the Word. And my heart was being sliced and diced. I'm telling you, I was so convicted. And while I would say to people, I don't like this, I'd lean over to Paul and say, well, I think he should have said this differently. Truth is, I couldn't stay away. I couldn't stay away. And uh, I, I knew very shortly that that was going to be my church. And then all I had to figure out is what I was going to do as a pastor. And when I got ready to go to Bible college, or it spoke to my heart, um, somebody recommended a Bible college, a false teaching Bible college. And uh, I, I, I sent in, I tried to fill out a, an application, but I couldn't fill it out. It was just the Spirit was checking my heart. And then I heard a commercial for Calvary Chapel Bible College, and it was as though Jesus was saying, that's it for you. So I went to Calvary Chapel Bible College, and Calvary Chapel stands for teaching the Word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, not giving sermon topics or telling cute stories, but just teaching the Bible. And for me, um, nothing else, then or now, makes sense. Nothing else made sense. That was what I was knew I was knew I was going to do. And so when uh, it was time to go to Bible college, I knew that was what I was going to do. And um, Danny, four years after I got saved, Paul and I arrived in San Antonio in 1995 to start Calvary Chapel. So it never was a possibility that we are going to do anything else. I actually had a pastor of a church that we were going to uh, toward the end of, of my stay in Bible college um, um, who, who offered me a, a job uh, and said, look, if you stay here, 
we'll help you start a church. But what we want you to stay here. And it was anathema to me. I, I just, he was a very nice man, but I just said, no, we know exactly what God has told us to do. We're going to San Antonio, Texas to start a church. And Danny, I'm so grateful that I did. On May 31st, this month, this will be our 25th birthday as a church. 25 years. Who would have thought? I'm grateful that I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor. I'm grateful that we've been faithful to teaching the Word, and I'm even more grateful to God for the work that He's done. So, Danny, that's the story. We've got 30 minutes left in the program, and we would love to have your phone calls and questions, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up For Life, and I'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and The Word to Stand On for Life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show, 340-9585. Here's a question from William. Uh, Pastor Ron, if you had a friend who was a committed Catholic, would you try to convert him? William, the answer is unequivocally yes. Just the idea that he's a friend means I care about him. I care about his soul. And you don't get saved by being a Catholic. You get saved by being born again. So that's the thing. You know what I found, William? I found that a lot of people who say they're committed Catholics. You know, we've had those people say, you know, born a Catholic, going to die a Catholic. Um, I sort of changed the, the focus a little bit and asked him, well, well, Jesus said you had to be born again, so when were you born again? And people who know Catholic doctrine, and, and a lot of Catholics are just like a lot of Christians, they don't really know what their church teaches. But if they really know, they'll say, well, you know, I, I was born again with infant baptism. And that's usually a really good opportunity to, dis, to, to, to begin a conversation with them. Do you, do you really think that something you do as a baby Something that's done to you is better way to put it. Is enough to cover your sins? Do you really feel like you've given your life to Jesus? And then I always remind them that Jesus, when he said you must be born again, he said it twice. He said it to the most religious man in Israel. Nicodemus. And so that usually will give me an opportunity to discuss them, but but with, with no hesitation, I would try to convert him because here's what I would say. When Jesus said, you cannot enter the kingdom of God except a man be born again, unless you can stand before the Lord and say that my life was given to you, I stopped living for me, I started living for you, I asked forgiveness of my sins, and I don't mean in a confessional, then you're not born again. And you're in the same situation as the religious man Nicodemus was in. So yes, if he was a friend, I, I tell that all the time. You know, uh, William, I had a, uh, I was doing a Bible study uh, in John chapter 3 many, many years ago. And I asked the church by show of hands, I did it all three services, how, by show of hands, how many of you come from a Catholic background? And it was like 90% of the people in our sanctuary that day came from a Catholic background. And when you see, when you begin to see what the Holy Spirit will do in the life of a Catholic who converts to being a Christian, now I want to be clear, there are some Catholics who are born again. I don't think they're fruitful as Christians. I don't think they're living the abundant, fruitful life Jesus wants them to. But, but there are some Catholics who really know Jesus and they are born again. But for the most part, being a Catholic just makes it harder 
to be saved because you do all the religious stuff and you think that's enough. And, of course, the church has so many, the Catholic Church has so many doctrinal difficulties that it's usually pretty easy if somebody really wants to dig in and find out. Uh, it's usually pretty easy to show them those doctrinal deficiencies. So, William, I would, un, without hesitation, I would try to convert them, not to Calvary Chapel, but I'd try to convert them to Jesus Christ and let the Holy Spirit take care of it from there. Good question. Janet asks, what does it mean that our righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees to make it into the kingdom of God? Well, that, that's kind of an illustration, Janet, of what I was just talking about, about being born again. You know, when Jesus was talking to the religious leaders, uh, you remember they were always accusing him of violating the Sabbath. They were accusing him of hanging out with sinners and, and accused him of being a drunk. Um, he hung around people that the good people wouldn't hang around. And Jesus would simply tell them, look, you think you know the law, but what you're really doing is ignoring the law. You're trying to manipulate the law to your purpose. And so when Jesus would say, remember, there's a whole crowd of people and Jesus is exposing the religious leaders. He says, I tell you the truth. It's one of his verily, verily statements. I tell you the truth, except a man's righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, he's not going to heaven. And that would have infuriated the Pharisees. They thought they were the most righteous of all. And by the way, the people thought they were the most righteous as well. But instead... Jesus said, nope, not good enough. You're still going to find yourself short of entering in heaven. Now, Janet, the righteousness, I once had a t-shirt that said, the righteousness God requires is the righteousness his righteousness requires him to require. And I like that t-shirt because to, to get to heaven, you got to be perfect. And that's why Jesus, why we have to be born again, because only Jesus was perfect, and he has to give us, through faith, we believe, he gives us his righteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's the kind of righteousness that heaven requires. Only through Jesus is perfection possible? You know, Janet, when Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and uh, uh, always calling out uh, the religious leaders, calling them whitewashed graves, he was calling them a brood of vipers, calling them snakes, really. And they get so angry, but they couldn't say anything to refute him because Jesus would simply go back into their Old Testament scriptures, the ones that they were supposed to be experts in, and he was simply proving everything he said by virtue of of the word. And they just didn't want to hear. They really didn't want to hear. Here's a question, another one that I like. This is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, do you really believe we're the final generation on the earth? Anonymous with all of my being, I believe, that we are the final generation on earth. Now, let me be really honest here. I'm like 108 years old. And so I might die before Jesus comes back. However, I do believe that we're in the generation that's going to see the return of Jesus to the earth. I think we're going to see the rapture of the church and then Jesus is going to take us to be with him and then he's going to bring us back with him for the very end of days. And I think we're the final generation. Now, I know people have been saying, oh, you've been saying that for 25 years. Well, the Christian church has been saying it for 2,000 years. And Peter said, for those of you who say, where is this coming that you speak of? Peter gets very stern with him. He says, God's not slack concerning the promise, but he's patient, unwilling that any should perish. And that means what we've got to do in these last days is tell people about Jesus. I spent some time on my message back in church on Sunday telling our church we can't be the same when we come back from this epidemic than than we were before. You know, church isn't supposed to be comfortable. Church is a, a, a like a training camp. It's where we get equipped to do the work of ministry. We get equipped to go out into the spiritual wars of this world. And 
I've said repeatedly from the beginning of this, I've had the sense that God was telling me that this virus, this pandemic, he's going to use it. He didn't cause it, but he's going to use it to shake up and shake out his church. I think there's going to be a lot of people, uh, anonymous, who don't come back to church. Now, if you're one of those people and you're listening to my voice and you've gotten real comfortable with live stream, live stream or, or you've just decided, well, you know, I like my time at home, you're in a really, really dangerous place. And I don't think any church is going to be as big as it was in terms of numbers of people after the restrictions are completely removed. I just don't think they're going to be as big as they were before. I think in the shaking out, there's going to be people who get shaken out. I think their true hearts are going to be revealed. I think we're going to have some churches in town with really, really big buildings. We're going to find that a lot of times those buildings seem quite empty. I think people who had a loose grip on Jesus before all this started are going to have to decide either to hang on or they're going to have to decide, I don't need it. And with all of my heart, I believe that's just a clarion call to the church to tell people about Jesus. Come back, but come back with a mission from God. You know, I expected we had our first service. I talked about it last week. We had our first service anonymous this Sunday where, uh, according to the governor's orders, we could come back in. And I, you know, I, I really tried hard not to have any expectation. You know, I try to teach if there's nobody here for the six weeks um, when the room was empty. Um, or, or if there's only a few people, it doesn't matter. I try to teach with all of my heart. I try to do it as passionately as I can. Um, and so, so I had no expectations about who was going to show. I knew that the numbers were going to be down because we had to reduce our space, our effective seating space. We have a small building. And uh, even at that, the turnout was less than I thought. I, I really... I believed, I guess, I didn't know, I I mean, I didn't let it bum me out or anything, but, but, but I thought there'd be a lot of people here. I thought there'd be so many people from Calvary Chapel. I mean, we got a church, a lot of people come here. We got a church where people really love the Lord. And I thought a lot of those people would be back in church. Um, they weren't. You know, last Saturday after our prayer, and we did have a good turnout for prayer. That was really nice. But uh, last Saturday, prayer, Paul and I went to uh, our favorite breakfast restaurant. We've been going for 20 years. And um, there's always a really long waiting line there. Always. And I thought, oh, no, now they're down to 25% capacity. And we might have to wait for a really long time. But we were excited to go. It's like, okay, things are sort of slowly getting back to normal. And we got in there. And there was no one there. I think there were maybe five or six people sitting around when we went in, had our breakfast, left, and and it was so quick and so quiet. Uh, and then it hit me. I told Paul, I said, I don't think we're going to have a whole bunch of people at church tomorrow because people are really afraid. We have been scared into complacency. And I think that doesn't bode well for the shaking out of the church that I've been talking about. All of that to say, for all of you in this audience, if you're one of those people who's not so thrilled to get back into church, um, you're getting used to live stream, you're getting used to pajamas at church, be careful. Be really, really careful. Mark asked me, is Donald Trump a Christian? Mark, only God knows. Only God knows. I know he claims to be a Christian, but so do a lot of people claim to be Christians. 
But here's what um, I can say about Donald Trump. I can't judge his heart, but I can see certainly there's no fruit. Um, The way he talks, the language he uses, the pattern of his life, um, the overwhelming sense of pride, ego. Um, I hope he is. I pray for him to be saved. But, Mark, there's no way to know for sure other than our job is to look at fruit. Let's go to our first call today. Thank you, May, on line one. May, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor. Um, I uh, kind of caught the last uh, end of what you were talking about earlier. Um, uh, if you had a best friend that was uh, was a Catholic priest, May, you're breaking up a lot. Did we lose her? May, are you there? Okay, May, I I don't know. We lost you, please. Oh, you're there. Okay, May, the producer's telling me you're there. Can you hear me? May, I can't hear you. Maybe um, uh, call back, 340 uh, 9585, I'll take your call. I'm going to go to another call and then we'll get it. Let's go to line two now. Talk with Cindy from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, Cindy. Um, a, a good friend of mine in Arizona uh, told me that every morning before she starts her day, she puts on the armor of God. I mean, she literally visualizes putting on each piece. And I thought that was really a neat idea. And Mm -hmm. if there's time, I wondered if you'd like to go through each piece of our armor uh, for us. And and that would be nice. And and happy Tuesday. Bye. (laughs) Thank you, Cindy, very, very much. You know, I'm a a visual person. And so um, I also, Cindy, think it is a really, really good idea. Um, uh, I don't think I'm going to have time to go through it all, but the things that these things represent are so important. Um, you know, Ephesians is this great book where the divine design of the book is God's done all these things, the first three verses. This is then our response, the last three chapters. Um, and and he, he closed the book by, by talking about the importance of fighting the spiritual battles. A lot of times we'd like to avoid the spiritual battles, but um, he, has to, to, he said you need to fight every single day. And so when he says that, he says um, uh, in verse 14, stand firm with uh, the belt of truth buckled around your waist. That's the first piece of the armor. And that's simply holding on to the truth. Jesus said he was the truth. And so what we've got to do is, is, is just secure our place in Christ with the truth. Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Uh, having been born again, having received the promises of God. Those are, are truths that we can hold on to. And the reason that's so important is because uh, the, the devil is always lying to us. And we're such willing accomplices to his lies. So when he says God doesn't love you, the truth is that no, he does. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believe would not perish but have everlasting life. When you start to feel um, condemned. Oh God, I'm so sorry I disappointed you. I know you, you, you are condemning me now. No, the truth is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you could go through that over and over and over. The truth is that the love of God was demonstrated once and for all. The next piece is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, Cindy, most of us don't feel all that righteous. We live with ourselves. We know our thoughts. We, we're aware of the things that we do that fall short of the glory of God. But we've been given the righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness is going to be with us forever. Um, the, the, and next, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That means that we've got to be ready always to share the truth of Jesus Christ with people in this world. The shield of faith. 
um, the shield of faith. Um, all I have to do is believe, and all of those fiery darts of the, the enemy won't stand. So the, the shield, remember, it protected the inner parts, the, the most vulnerable parts. Roman soldiers, and that's what Paul was using as an example, they'd have this shield that they would hide behind when they went into battle and nobody could penetrate that shield. Well, we don't want to let anything penetrate our faith in Christ. Helmet of salvation, I know that I'm saved. That protects the brain. I've got to keep my mind in the right place. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We've got to be men and women of the Word. And then finally, pray um, in the Spirit on all occasions. Very, very important things. Um, Cindy, thank you. Let's go back. I think we got May back on the line. May, sorry for the trouble. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor. Um, I listen to you quite often on my way uh, home from work, and um, I just wanted to ask you a question. You had spoken a little bit earlier about um, if you had a best friend who was a Catholic priest, I think is what it was, mm-hmm. would you try to convert him? And is, I didn't catch everything. I was in my okay. car. And so um, you said, yes, absolutely, you would, is what I gathered. However, I just need some more I have a dear friend, my best friend, who is Catholic, and Mm -hmm. my parents, before they died, converted to Catholicism, Um, and I couldn't understand it, and I think my mom just did it because she liked the ceremonies. I don't think it was anything, I don't think it was anything that had to do with God. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway, I would like to find a way to talk to my friend without, well, it may hurt her, but I, I just need to know, you said there's so much about the Catholic Church, if you just learn a little bit more about it, and maybe I need something to read to figure out a little bit more about it. I don't know. So mm-hmm. I think if you don't mind, I'm going to just back off the phone and listen to you offline because I'm have I'm in my car, and um, okay. I won't be able to. I, actually, I just drove up, so I'm going to run in the house, and hopefully I'll catch what you have to say. <laughs> okay. Thank you, May. God bless you. And- uh, your heart just blesses me so much. I, I love that your heart hurts for your friend. Now, the question that I was answering is, if I had a friend, not a priest, but if I had a friend who was a committed Catholic, would I try to convert him? And the answer is yes. And uh, I think, May, here's one of the, the opportunities that you're going to have to prove that you really care about this person. And and you tell her, tell him, I don't know who it is, but but um, just let him know that Jesus said, except a man or a woman be born again, they will not in any way inherit the kingdom of God. And I would ask your friend, when were you born again? And depending on her commitment to Catholic Church and Catholic doctrine, uh, she'll either answer, well, you know, I've just always been this, I've always been a Christian, I'm a Catholic, and but it's not enough. The most religious man in the Bible was Nicodemus in Jesus' day. And Jesus was talking to him when he said it. And the doctrinal issues, you know, there's a, a small book, the, 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 the Catholic Catechism. It's not big at all, but, but you can go through that catechism and just take all of the things in there that are, are, are contrary, antithetical to what the Bible teaches. And, and uh, you can discuss those things with your friend. Now, what I would do is start the conversation this way. I would say, I, I love you so much. And I know you're a committed Catholic, but I can't imagine going to heaven and you not being there. So I want to know, if you died today, why would you go to heaven? And she says, well, I'm a good person, or because I'm a Catholic, or because I was baptized as an infant. Well, that opens up a door so wide, and you can do this compassionately. And she may be a little offended, but, but she's your friend uh, you love her or him. I, I'm not. You didn't say it was a woman, but um, uh, they know your heart. So trust that God is going to go before you. And if you'll do that, I think you're going to have some success. Just, just uh, give her the opportunity to ask you questions. Go over the Catholic Catechism and, and show her the errors. And I, 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 I've just found that most of the time, when somebody has a heart like yours, may most of the time. God is preparing the person that you're going to go speak to, and God will plant some seeds. Let me tell you a quick story about a lady named Gladys. Uh, Her family got saved at our church many, many years ago. 
And she was one who was a lifelong cradle Catholic. Her mother, who was still alive at the time, um, was a Catholic and, and, and was distraught because the other family, the other siblings had converted and become Christians. And, and, um, Gladys started seeing the changes in her family. And so she'd start showing up at church. Actually, she came to a wedding. She was the maid of honor in a wedding that I did. And, um, and she just saw everything was so different. And so she just kept coming back. And every time I'd see her, she'd say, this isn't my church. I'm a Catholic. I'd say, that's okay. Just keep coming. Um, she's now married to an elder in a Calvary chapel. Just God was working on her. And that's what we need to know. Now, uh, relative to your mother converting, um, you know, if, if you belong to the Lord and you think your mother did, converting to Catholicism isn't going to cost her salvation. But I, I think you're right. There's a lot of people that just like the liturgy and the goosebumps and sort of the, the churchy feel of, of uh, those liturgical churches. And it, it sort of gives them a goosebump experience that, that resonates with them. And you're right, it doesn't have anything to do with God. Well, God knows your mom's heart. God knows your mom's heart. So uh, I think you can rest in that. May I will be praying for you and I will be praying for your friend. Hey, thank you for the calls that we got the second half of the program. Thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On For Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow on AM 630, The Word at 4 o'clock. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On For Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On For Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at CalvarySA.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.